Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I heard on the radio um, yesterday, or the day before, maybe, I think it was yesterday, that one in five people have not started their Christmas shopping yet. That's 20%. That's why it's so crowded at the malls, by the way. So, How many of them are men? Okay. You said that, Rich, not me. I'm not going to say something like that. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time of year that uh, we give gifts and we enjoy and it's fun to give gifts. And I, I was thinking back every, every time, this, this Sunday in particular, I always think back of my uh, friend Dick Horn because uh, Dick and I had the same problem that uh, we both liked model railroading. and Well, that wasn't the problem. We both liked model railroading. The problem was that um, our wives didn't, this, you know, you, you decide, I'm not going to get you anything for Christmas. For, <laughs> what would I get you? I have no idea. Dick and Jan was the same way. So Dick and I would exchange presents. So uh, every every year, I've told you this before, but every year we'd, I'd come to Christmas, I'd come to church this Sunday, and I'd have a beautifully wrapped, beautiful, really nice, expensive engine or train car or something, and uh, Dick would get a calendar for me or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we enjoyed, it's fun to exchange gifts. We enjoyed exchanging gifts. And there's a certain tradition in that, and you all have your own traditions at your homes and your families. And, of course, as we consider God's gift to us this Christmas. Now, our Advent reading today was on joy. The the candle today that we lit, and each Sunday we've been lighting a candle, and on Christmas Eve uh, we will light the Christ candle. And uh, today's candle was joy. And, um, excuse me, love. Sorry about that. Love. I'm looking at my notes here. Love. Today's candle is love. And that is our theme today, love. And if I were to ask you, what author of biblical books, which of the biblical authors, when we talk about love, come, come to mind especially? Well, certainly... The Apostle Paul would, because there are so many, you know, God demonstrates his love toward us. But someone back here said it. John. John. The author, John. The Apostle, John. The old Apostle, in the sense we say the old Apostle, because church tradition has that he outlived all the other Apostles. He probably wrote his uh, epistles. And, uh, and, of course, the book of Revelation at the end of his life, which could have been toward the end of the first century. Many believe he was in his 90s, about 90 years old maybe, when he wrote. And as he reflected back, and, and, and the word love, agape love, the love of God, uh, we find so often in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, First John. And um, this morning... It was interesting to me as our Advent candle was lit and I asked Mike for a copy when he walked down. I don't know if you noticed, but the scriptures that were read were from 1 John, 1 John, and the Gospel of John. Because the love of God is so prominent in John's Gospels. 
So for my Christmas message today, I would like to choose a passage. Uh, Most of our Christmas readings are from Luke, from Matthew, and from Isaiah, especially, um, because that's the Christmas story. And we have been celebrating that story. We have sung about it. We have read it. We will share it on Christmas Eve with scripture readings and meditation. Each of the pastors will bring a short meditation along with the music. But for our scripture reading today, I would like to turn, or for our sermon today, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 for our Christmas uh, verse for today. John chapter 3. And then let's have a word of prayer together, could we? Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, it's always our prayer that we would hear your words, we would listen to your word. Uh, We thank you for giving us the scriptures that to tell us how much you do love us and explain to us the way of salvation, your plan of redemption. And so we come to it this time and ask that you would bless it uh, to our hearts as we look at it together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now the one verse I would like to focus on today, I think is probably, I don't know that I know exactly the statistics, but probably the best known verse in the Bible. John 3 16. And um, I'm from the generation that, and I think many that memorized it in the King James Version of the Bible. And it's one of those verses um, like the 23rd Psalm and a few others that I could probably say and just about everybody could say it together with us. But John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but shall have everlasting life. The NIV translation says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'd like to ask you as we consider this verse this morning, why does God love you? Why does God love you? So often, you know, I, I try to close our services with a reminder that God loves, God loves you so much. So, so a few years back at our pastor's conference, leadership conference at the Grace Gospel Fellowship, we had um, London, I forget his first name, remember what it was? London, he, was, uh, he worked with um, uh, Jim Dobson and Focus on the Family, and his, his ministry was just to pastors. They hired him full-time to just minister to pastors and leaders. And um, as he closed his last session, uh, he asked us and he reminded us, he said, don't ever let anybody leave your church on any Sunday without hearing that God loves them, how much God loves them. And I took that to heart and I thought, you know, that's true. And uh, the Bible tells us that God is love. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? And why does God love me? For God so loved the world, the cosmos, the world. And of course, the emphasis in John is not just creation, but humanity, people, individuals that he created in his own image. God loves us because he is a loving God. God loves us because he is a loving God. Why do you love your children? Why do you, if you're a parent or a grandparent here today, why do you love your children? Why do you love them? 
Is it because they are always so wonderful? They're always perfect, never make a mistake, never do anything wrong. Is they always they sometimes disappoint you? Do, you know, I know I've disappointed my mom, I'm sure, at times and so forth. Uh, you love them because they're your children. That's why you love them. Because they're your children. Because you gave birth to them. You know, we have two uh, roses today on the, on the organ. Uh, two down, one to go. Right? <laughs> We're waiting for Van Warmers. So It'll be the third one. We have three, three babies due here in this, this uh, winter. And so uh, Liz Van Warmer, our Bible reader this morning, she's the next. And um, we, will have, we will have three babies born. We love these children because they're your children. We love them in our church family because they are our children. But you love them as parents. God created us in his own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female. We are in God's image. God loves us because he is a loving God. And God's love is so wide, it's so wide, that it's enough to include the entire world. All humanity, every human that has ever been born, from Adam till now, every human, well, Adam wasn't born. Adam was created and Eve was created. But from then on, every human, God has loved and God loves. It's interesting. In the Old Testament, this isn't spoken as clearly. This idea that God's love is so wide that it encompasses all humanity. You know, God loves people in the Old Testament and God had a chosen people. But you could almost say it's sort of a uniquely Christian, distinctly Christian view. A distinctly Christian view that God loves everyone. Everyone. God loves everyone. For God so loved the world. And you know, when it says that, it doesn't say, for God so loved the world because they loved him. For God so loved the world, or at least those in the world that please him or that obey him. It says, unconditionally, God so loved the world. It embraces all humanity. His love is wide. And it does not depend on us. It does not depend. God didn't choose to love me because he looked ahead and saw that I would be such a wonderful person, because I'm not. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, God says to Israel, He says, Israel, why, why, did, I, why did I love you? Why did I call you? Why are you my firstborn? Why are you my chosen people? And he tells Moses to tell them, it's not because you were so numerous. It's not because you were so great. It's because I chose, I chose to love you. I chose to love you. God loves you today because he is a loving God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That he gave, he gave. And that is why we look at this and we say, you know, God did not just, you know, on, on Christmas, and we, I love having the, the manger scene behind me. Uh, you know, when we were in uh, Israel, of course, you know, you go, to, you go to the Bethlehem, there's the church of the nativity. Then you can also visit a area outside the church of the nativity. Because the church was built over this place, it's hard to really grasp, you know, what it may have looked like. 
So you can go visit another place where there is a first century inn, and there's also the rock is soft, and so they had these caves kind of built into the rock, which really served. I don't think so much of a wooden barn. Wood is kind of scarce in Palestine. But, you know, kind of a carved out or a natural cave where the animals would be sheltered, and it would be an inn uh, built next to it, or it would be outside from the inn. And you go visit those places, and, and you get a feel for what it was like, you know, and, and, and it could have been a cold, damp day like today, um, you know, not, not a beautiful, sunny uh, Middle Eastern day. Um, and also, you also visit a place in up north in Megiddo where they show you a typical manger from the biblical world. The typical manger from the biblical world was rock and it was hollowed out because, again, wood is not plentiful. And rock is plentiful in Palestine. And so they would take these soft rock and they would hollow it out and they would put the hay and the feeding stuff in this here, uh, the rock, and the animals would eat out of the rock. And I think every year, and I tell you every year, but it's okay, it's Christmas time, we do a lot of things traditionally every year, that I, I just could not help be touched when we stood at the garden tomb. At the garden tomb. And we saw a tomb, either it was or it was similar to the one that Jesus was laid in. And you look inside that tomb, and there is a rock, there's a rock bench hollowed out of rock where he was laid. And I think every year of that, of that, um, of those two bookends, that Jesus was laid in a, in a rock, most likely rock manger. And his mother wrapped him in swaddling cloths or swaddling clothes, wrapped the baby up. And when Jesus died, they took him down from the cross. And Joseph and Nicodemus, they, they brought cloths, according to Jewish burial custom, and they wrapped him in cloths and laid him. And he began his, he began his earthly life laid in a rock, locked, wrapped in cloth, and he ended laid in a rock, wrapped in cloth. But the cloth that he was wrapped in at the end would have been soaked in blood. Would have been soaked in blood. God gave his only begotten son. The Bible does not say in this particular verse simply that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't just send his son. If he sent his son, his son could have come and could have preached God's word. Could have taught us wonderful things. And gone back to heaven. But he gave his only begotten son. And this speaks, friends, this speaks in the Jewish tradition. This speaks of sacrifice. This speaks of sacrifice. He gave his only begotten son. So that, and in the, in the original language when it says, it's the idea that so that, that he actually gave. He actually gave. His only begotten son. So that he actually gave. In Isaiah 53 in the original language. The suffering servant of God. He was, he was given up. And it speaks of sacrifice. It speaks of sacrifice. And what is a sacrifice? We see in the Old Testament. We read so much about sacrifice. What is sacrifice? When the Jews brought on Passover for example. When they brought the lamb and, and sacrificed it on Passover night, on that, on that terrible night when the angel of death came across the land, and any household that didn't have the blood sprinkled on the door, the firstborn from Pharaoh 
to the lowest slave was slain by the angel of death. It was the blood on that door that protected and covered over. So the angel passed over. And from then on, every year, the Jews would come and sacrifice. And and the Passover lamb, you didn't bring the lamb that was going to die anyway. You didn't bring the one that was past poll date. You know, you brought the lamb that was the best. It was the most expensive. It was the one that cost you the most. It was a sacrifice to give up that lamb. In the Old Testament, the principle is that God gets the first and God gets the best. Why? Because it's a sacrifice in response to what God has done for you. And the Lord Jesus, and of course, all those lambs, all those Passover lambs over the centuries that were, that were slain and all the other sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the, the goats and so forth, it was all looking forward to the cross of Calvary. Where the Lamb of God, John said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world would be sacrificed on that cross. For God so loved the world that He actually, so that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. Now in the King James language, you notice the NIV says His one and only Son. And this is a, this, this phrase, begotten, is, is something that is really kind of unique, not 100%, but mostly unique to John. Let's, let's track it for a minute. John chapter 1. You're in John 3. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is the, this is the phrase. Remember, I, I picture this old apostle, maybe close to 90, outliving all the other apostles and reflecting back, you know, 60 years ago when he was a young man. And he traveled with Jesus and he spent time with him. And, he's in, and then throughout the years, as he, as he was worked as an apostle and served God and all that he went through, and he was sort of the last man standing, if you will, the apostolic group. And he reflects back, guided by the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how the Word became flesh, verse 14. The Word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us. You've probably heard some say, and he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent and he lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory. We have seen his glory. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. And they actually saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes into his heavenly glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 1, in verse 18, for the law, verse, well, look at 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, the only begotten, the only begotten, speaking of Christ, who is at the Father's side now, has made, previously has made him known unto us. The one and only, the only begotten of the Father. We've read John chapter 3 and verse 16. But if you look at John chapter 3 and verse 18. <clears throat> whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's, the only begotten of the Father. God's one and only Son. The only begotten Son. And then you go to what we, to, to the first John chapter four. Our scripture reading 
our scripture reading um, that we read today, that uh, Mike read to us in 1 John chapter 4, this is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son, his only begotten son, into the world that we might live through him. This is one of John's sort of uniquely favorite phrases, the only begotten of the Father. Now, what does that word only begotten mean? It is kind of interesting that this this phrase actually, over the centuries, has given rise to all sorts of controversy. The, The big controversy that raised in the early church and is still an issue today for many who who call themselves Christians, that teach that Jesus was not fully God. He was the first created, the firstborn meaning the first created, the first one to come into existence. But if if we take the New Testament and the Old Testament and read it carefully in the context of the entire Bible, we clearly see, we clearly see that that the Son is eternal, he did not have a beginning. He is the same quality and character of the, of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in Isaiah, in that passage that we read uh, and, we, and we sing and we hear sing at Christmas time, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, let me just read to you. For unto us, you know this passage, a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, in the, because of Handel's Messiah and the uh, punctuation, you know, it's Wonderful Counselor. Like it's two things. But in the original, the idea is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. You know, it's each is dual. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You know, we sing this. We, we, it's in our Christmas cards. It's on, you know, in our literature and so forth. But it clearly says, Everlasting Father. He is eternal. And in fact, so, so this phrase, only begotten of the Father, what does this mean? Does it mean the only born? Well, the actual, the best translation of this word probably one and only is not the best translation. Only begotten sort of stuck uh, in, in, in the original uh, English New Testaments. In the old Latin from the second century, when they first translated the Greek into Latin, they used the word unicus, unique. In the second century, very close to the original writings. And that probably captures it the best. It means unique in kind, one of a kind. Only begotten, one of a kind, unique in its kind. And what, what John is, is telling us, for God so loved the world that he gave the one of a kind, the unique in kind, the Son, God himself. God gave him. You know, Luke uh, tells us that Mary brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. And it's interesting that in in Paul's epistle to the Colossians, not only is Jesus considered and called the only begotten, the only of its kind, the unique, the unique one. Jesus is also called the firstborn, not just of Mary. Mary brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. But in Colossians chapter one and in verse 15, 
The Apostle Paul says this. He is the image of the invisible God. Think of that. How does something invisible have an image? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? It's like, it's like Paul telling us that we will have a spiritual body. Spirit and material are contradictory in terms. These are the mysteries of the Christian faith. He is the image of the invisible God. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all... Th- now listen, again, this is, I want to establish and just remind us of this essential Christian truth today. That Jesus Christ is fully God. When he came to earth, that baby in the manger, as Gary mentioned this morning, to think of a, or to think of a, 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 a baby. You know, Emma was up here today. Wasn't she cute? Reading scripture. And she was so good up here with her mom and dad this morning. Emma's two, right? Right? Somebody say yes. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> Emma's two years old. Jesus Christ was two years old. He was the same age as Emma at one time. And he looked at his mom and dad just like Emma looked at her mom and dad when they read this morning. He was a two-year-old baby, but he was fully and completely God and completely human. This is the miracle, the mystery of the incarnation. He was the firstborn over all creation. And that term there, firstborn, also means more than birthed. Because in the Old Testament, God says to Israel, you are my firstborn. Israel was not the firstborn people. Israel was not the first people group. But when God called them, they became his firstborn because in the old old world, firstborn had to do with rank or position. That's what it meant. The firstborn. And Jesus Christ is the only begotten, unique in a kind, and he is also the firstborn in terms of rank or position in God's plan of salvation for humanity. He was a firstborn, but Paul goes on, and if you doubt that he is not eternal, look what it says here. For by him all things were created. If he was the first created, how could he create all things? Things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones of power, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, only begotten, firstborn. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, there is another author in the Bible that uses that phrase. And it's in the book of Hebrews. And it's in, it's in Hebrews chapter 11, which is what we call the faith chapter, because it's the chapter that um, speaks of all the heroes of the faith, if you will. And in Hebrews chapter 11, in speaking of Abraham and his son, and speaking of Abraham's faith, in in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his only begotten son. You notice in the NIV, his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned, and we learn in Hebrews why he did this, that God could raise him from the dead, 
And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That, that is an amazing story of faith. The fathers, grandfathers here today, Gary, that God asked you to sacrifice Sam. God asked me to sacrifice Jimmy. If God, if, if God asked any of us to sacrifice our sons, Aiden and Rory, you know, we're the pastors. What would to sacrifice your son, to lay him on an altar, and to slit his throat, and to burn him as a holocaust to God? That Abraham was going to do it. He was going to do it. And he raised that knife and he didn't hold it there waiting for God to say stop. He raised it to kill him because it says in Hebrews, this was God's problem. You know, if if God asked me to sacrifice him and every promise that God has given, every promise depends on that one child, then then God's going to have to figure that out. And it says in Hebrews that he, he just reasoned if God had to raise him from the ashes of that Holocaust burnt offering, that God would do that. And listen, friends, as John writes, John, the Gospel of John, and as a, as a Jewish man, and knowing that Old Testament so well, I can't help but think that Isaac and Abraham came back to his mind when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique of a kind son. Isaac was a unique of a kind because God didn't say, if Isaac dies, we'll try it again. No, God said in him are all the promises. That's it. He's unique. Not Ishmael, not any other children you might have. In Isaac, he was unique of a kind. And of course, the difference was when Abraham put Isaac on that altar and raised that knife and the angel of God stopped. Don't slay. Don't, don't touch him. Don't harm him. For now I know you fear me. And look over there, Abraham. There is the sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ hung on that cross at Calvary, and when he went to his death, and in those three hours of darkness, listen, friends, this is part of our Christmas story. There was no voice. There was no voice that said, wait, stop, enough. He died on the cross for me and for you. Because he loves you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What? I'm going to close with this. That whoever believeth in him will not perish. The word perish in the Greek is the word destruction. It's serious. This is serious, friends. And because if it says will not perish, doesn't that... Raise the issue that if you don't believe, you will. It's serious. Will not perish, but will hold now everlasting life. And the amazing thing is, it simply says whoever believes. It doesn't qualify it. It doesn't tell us the degree of that belief. It doesn't tell us the method or manner of that, that belief. It doesn't tell if you're male or female, bond or slave, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't say the quality of that belief. It doesn't say the intelligence of that belief. 
It simply says, as Paul told the Philippian jailer, when he cried out, Paul, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus said what? I mean, Paul said what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now listen, friends, this is the good news of Christmas. That whoever believes, we think of that thief on the cross who simply looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and said, remember me, and Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I don't know what he understood. I don't know what he figured out. But he somehow put his simple belief in this man next to him that he was who he said he was. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. That whosoever believeth will not perish. And friends, this is the good news of Christmas. Yes, there is deep theology. There is deep theology. There are deep thoughts. There are deep mysteries. And it's okay for us to, to think about those and venture into them. You know, the Bible tells us, and you should always remember this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses says, as he comes to the end of his life, the, re- the revealed things belong to us and the secret things belong to God. The things that God has revealed in His Word, they belong to us. Jesus Christ, that baby in a manger, was just as, just as human as I was when I was first born in Swedish Hospital in 1952. But He was completely as much God as God the Father and God the Spirit, and it didn't lessen it one bit. That has been revealed to us. The secret how belongs to God. Secret belongs to God, the mystery of it. What happened on that cross to Calvary, when that baby in a manger grew to be a man and was nailed to the cross, and the darkness covered that earth so no one could look at him. In the middle of the day, the darkness covered the earth, and nobody could look at him. And somehow, the Bible clearly tells us, what's revealed to me in the Bible, is that he bore my sins. He became my sacrifice and somehow carried all the crud in my life and all the sin in my life and all the pride and the arrogance and the selfishness that comes with my human nature. I know you think I'm a good guy. I appreciate that. I'm your pastor. Um, But I'm not that good. And you're not that good. You're nice people. I love you. You look good today. Come on, smile at me. Come on. (laughs) But we're humans. Somehow, Somehow the mystery, how did he do that? How did the wrath of God against sin get poured out and punished? He says his soul became a punishment, a suffered his soul for our death. How did that happen? Listen, friends, the reason it was dark is the mystery belongs to God, but the revealed thing belongs to us, and we have a choice to make. Do you believe it or not? Do you believe it or do you not believe it? That's the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why children, and we, and we make no apology, we don't coerce, we don't manipulate, but we make no apology for sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our little children. Right, Kyle and Awana? We, make no, we don't we can apologize for that. Because the Bible says... Unless you come as a child, you will not receive the kingdom of God. It's that simple 
faith. And listen, I want you to know as we close the service today that just about every Sunday, no matter what we're preaching on, whether it's Elijah, Elisha, the Gospel of John, Romans, Ephesians, or Revelation, or Matthew and Luke, I try to include somewhere in, in the message the simple Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know why I do that. I know that there are those who think, and today there is a feeling by a lot of people that, you know, you're presenting an easy believism. You're, you're kind of just throwing it out there. And the people, hey, when the Philippian jailer cried out to Paul, what must I do to be saved in that moment of crisis? Paul didn't hesitate to give him the simple message of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know what? There are people that I've talked to that you don't even know this, that have, been, have sat right here in this building. And I find out sometime later that for me or somebody else, or it could have been a devotional, it could have been during a cantata, they passed from death to life. It's because God had been working in their hearts. And every time we gather, there could be someone here today that God has been working in your Holy Spirit is speaking. The seeds have been planted. The water has been poured. And, and today may be the day. And that is why it is so important that we include in our ministry the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Commentator Murray said, The love of God is the reason for the incarnation for Christmas. That's the reason. People talk about the reason for the season. It's the love of God. And this love of God should therefore be seen as the background of the canvas that the rest of the gospel is painted on. We're going to close our service with another Christmas song this morning. This music that we love, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I ask you again, my friend, if you're here today and you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I have told you that he died for your sins. And I've told you, you just have to believe and say yes to God and receive Christ as your Savior. You don't have to understand it all. You have to know it. You know enough. And enough that you know is that you're a sinner. God loves you and sent His Son. You know what our cubbies learned? And all of his parents memorized this long time ago. What is it? God loved us and sent his son. Our two and three year olds learned that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, and you will be saved. And hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for coming and joining us today. We wish, I, I wish for you and your family that God's blessings. Okay, say a Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful day. Now listen, um, uh, next Sunday, I have a riddle for you. If you come next Sunday, you can solve it. The riddle is, how can Pastor Jim Shamaria preach the message while Pastor Jim Shamaria is sitting in the sixth row on this side over here? 
So that's a riddle that you can try to figure out. I think you can figure that one out, Kyleen. Okay, maybe. All right, next week. Now listen, here, here's the thing. I'm going to take advantage of my situation here just for a minute. Um, I know some of you are going to be watching the football game today. And it's, it's okay to pray that they win because they get home, if they get home field vanities all the way through, it's not going to interrupt anybody's church plans. So it's okay. It's a good thing, okay? Um, but you know, during that game today, there'll be some audibles called. And I'm going to call an audible this morning with the worship service. Our worship planners and team, I know, um, are okay with me doing this. And I'd like, I would like us to close. Would you take your hymnals in front of you? We're going to sing one more song. This will be our closing prayer. And I asked John if he'd come up. Faith, you can stay there. You and God, you guys can sing it. Beautiful voices. Sing with him. I want to hear your voices. You don't got a mic back there, Derek, but you can sing too. Anyway. Um, uh, 157. It's not a Christmas song, but today it is. 157. The love of God. First and third. First and third. Thank you, guys. The last stanza you'll notice in your hymnal, I'll just read to you. Stanza three was, text was from Meyer Ben Isaac Nahorai, Jewish name. And the story is that that last stanza was discovered uh, on the walls of an old style, what they called an insane asylum in those days. And it was scrawled with something into the stone on the wall in that insane asylum. And somebody saw... Somebody saw that, that message from the love of God and, and wrote those words that you sang this morning. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Somebody in the depths of despair. Somebody in discouragement. And where the eyes of parchment made, where the skies of parchment made, where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God. God loves you. God loves you. And we should love one another. We leave this place, Father, rejoicing in the hope of Christmas the joy and the peace and the love. We love you. We love you today because you first loved us. In Christ's name, all God's people, pray together. Amen. Amen.